You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. I think courts should be looking at the new evolving technologies and looking at ways in which the current state of that technology can be applied in a very cautious and and thoughtful way. Many of us think that artificial intelligence, AI, is still a fantasy well off into the future. And frankly, many think it might be a dark future. For example, movies such as 2001, A Space Odyssey, and The Matrix have made many people wary of AI. What folks don't realize is that AI technology is already in our daily lives. Now here's an example. I order ink cartridges for my computer printer on Amazon. Now, every two and a half months, I start getting ads for computer ink because, using AI, Amazon looks at my history of buying printer ink and predicts that about every 75 days, my ink cartridges will run dry and I'll need to reorder. Admittedly, this use of predictive data analysis is pretty basic but you can imagine a vast array of new areas where the use of past data can increase the accuracy of predicting the future. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Abhijit Chavan, Senior Executive Advisor with Tyler Technologies. Welcome, Abhijit. Thank you, Peter, for inviting me, and um, thanks to NACOM for hosting a discussion on this topic. Uh, Just a quick note. I will be sharing my personal opinions, and they do not necessarily represent my employer. Also joining us today is Ivy Ashton, president and founder of Legal Server. Welcome to you. Thank you, Peter. I'm happy to be here. Ivy, I mentioned Amazon predicting my use of printering. Can you name a few other ways we can see AI in our daily lives? Absolutely. So if we Think about artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever popular term we're calling it these days. Um, If we think about it at its core is really just a prediction machine. It's taking in data, it's comparing it to observations in the past, and it's giving an output that is the best prediction of what it thinks um, it is that you're looking for or whatever it's analyzing. So, you know, one of the areas that we see it all the time in our lives now is, you know, I've kids, I have kids in high school, and I kind of marveled that they walk around the house and they talk to their phone in English, and they get a response back with an answer in English, and they ask the um, Siri questions about certain facts and wait a few seconds, and pretty soon they get a response back. So, I mean, that's using at its core, uh, underlying that is artificial intelligence that is transcribing their voice into text, and then analyzing the text and figuring out what their intent of the question was, searching on the internet to find an answer and bringing back the best answer and then taking that text and putting it back to voice and and answering the question. So this is totally different than when we grew up in terms of how we found things or how we did research or how we knew anything. Um, And so we see this all the time now, just uh, in terms of the algorithms getting faster and more accurate, around recommendations, as you were mentioning with with Amazon, that's kind of looking at patterns in your buying history or looking at uh, patterns of 
your use of your computer and trying to predict what it is that you're looking for and when you'll need it. Other things like being able to search through photos and pick out people and start tagging photos with people inside of them or video and understanding what's happening in the video. There's all sorts of places like that that we see AI impacting our daily lives. Now, I've heard a number of definitions of AI. One very cynical definition is it's now just anything new in computer technology. However, another more serious definition is that AI is the use of past data to predict the future and act on those predictions. Abhijit, can you give our listeners your definition of just what artificial intelligence is? Artificial intelligence, or AI, is an umbrella term that is used often as a placeholder for a collection of different technologies. The term is also <laughs> often misused these days for marketing purposes. But AI as a field of computer science is not new. It progressed rapidly in recent years though, due to the large amount of digital data that we now generate about all aspects of our lives. And the increased computing power we now have available through cloud computing. Often when people say AI, they actually mean machine learning, which is a way to derive insights from large amounts of data. For example, say you can show a computer a large number of digital photographs, and you tell it which ones have a car in them and which ones don't. By looking at a large number of pictures, the computer will discover patterns and build a, a machine learning model to predict the probability of a car being in a photo that it is shown. So when you show the model a new set of pictures, it can seem to recognize cars in the picture. Now, imagine applying machine learning, various other applications like to identify uh, you know, fraudulent credit card transactions or uh, to recognize diseases and medical imaging or to understand language and translate between language so many possibilities with AI. Natural Language Processing, NLP. Now, many people believe it's just another name for computers thinking, which is what computers do. Abhijit, so just what is natural language processing and how is it different from what computers have always done? When we think of data, the first thing that probably comes to mind is a spreadsheet with data neatly structured in cells. But AI can work with unstructured data too, snippets of chat conversations between people or articles or entire novels. Natural language processing or NLP, as it is often referred to, is using AI to process human language and extract useful information from it. We can use NLP to understand human speech and use machines to do speech recognition or machine translations, uh, translating between languages. Even natural language generation, which is using machines to generate uh, natural language that sounds like human written or human spoken language. Peter, if I could jump in and just add sure. one thing to that. One of the things that we can also think about when we think about natural language processing is just to maybe take away some of the terms that are used and make it a little bit more accessible to people is if we think about what computers do at their core, which is they take an input, they process it, and they give an output. 
in any system that we ever talk about has those three characteristics, including natural language processing. And language is one of the oldest technologies known to, to man, right? It's thousands of years old. Um, and for, for a long time, language was verbal. Uh, it was spoken and it was spoken to, you know, passed down generation to generation. And then we started using like icons or, you know, hieroglyphics to, to represent language using some type of picture. And then that turned into language and then the printing press and whatever. So if you look at just the history of language itself, that technology is actually a very old technology. So if, if you think about what happens when two humans speak to each other in using language and assuming for the time being that we're using the same language, we're, we're, we're all speaking English right now. When the words that I speak and you hear, your brain processes and you understand what it is that I'm saying and you can respond to it. So when we move that to a machine and we want a machine to process language, it has always had to be written in certain syntax in order to make it work. So you give the machine commands by writing it in a certain way and the machine knows what to do. What natural language processing helps us do is take it out of that structure of a language that has certain rules and it moves it into more of a predictive method based on when I see these words in combination with other words, I can start to understand what it is and I can derive intent from that. And through that intent, I might be able to extract something that are called in, in the parlance of NLP called entities. And an entity is just some type of thing that we're looking for. And we can label that entity. So if, for instance, I said to you, you know, the person I pay my rent to told me how to move out, you might interpret that as saying, I understood what Ivy just said is that he's being evicted. The entity that you might have pulled out of that sentence is the type of legal issue I'm having is an eviction. Well, now computers, by feeding them lots of data and observations, where we're labeling the observations, saying like, here's how one person described it, that meant this, and here's how another person described it, and that meant this. We can start to use math to predict based on what it is that you say in language as to what you mean. And that's kind of at the foundation of what natural language processing is. With natural language processing, I'm curious. Will computers be able to distinguish the nuances of human speech? Will computers be able to identify sarcasm? That's a fair question. I've heard a lot of people ask that question, actually. And the honest answer is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Although I will say that there are algorithms that write music, that create art, that generate news articles. There are even algorithms that try to write jokes. So part of the answer your question will necessarily have to lie within whatever sensors we're using to interpret. So for instance, if I said to you, I can't believe that that man gave you the money. And I said it in that voice, you might derive what you might derive some type of meaning out of that. A, because you heard the words that I said, and B, because you heard the inflection in my voice. Right. So if I said, I can't believe that man gave you the money, that tends to have a different um, meaning to it. Or if I said, I can't believe that man gave you the money, that means maybe something else. Right. So mm -hmm. my point being is that there are limitations to computers always. And part of the limitation is what is it using to sense 
the its surroundings? What is it using to understand the environment in which this thing is happening? So if the only thing we're getting to put into a computer is text with no sense of sentiment or emphasis or or context in a bigger conversation or understanding cultural differences or even understanding relationships between people. All of those added elements enhance how we understand things. So I think part of the question you're asking is a logical question. Can it understand sarcasm? Maybe with enough observations it can, and maybe with the right sensors, it might also be able to add things to the observations to, to derive sarcasm or to derive meaning. Ivy, you've mentioned a number of applications for AI, but let me pick one that's particularly important to courts, language translation services. Now, the Future of Humanity Institute has predicted that we should see practical automated language translations by 2027. How does AI work with language translation, and is 2027 a realistic prediction? Well, I... I think with all of this, it's a fool's errand to predict anything more than a few years out. 2027 is still quite a distance away. Uh, change is happening very fast. I, I see no reason why that isn't realistic, but I, I won't speculate as to whether or not I think it's accurate. Um, I, I just have no way of knowing. So language translation is a, is a very interesting aspect uh, in this field, and it's seen a, a huge increase in the accuracy of tools like Google Translate that can um, can learn to translate between multiple languages. And, and a few years ago, there was a big breakthrough on how Google approached their algorithms to understanding language and translated into other languages. And the outcome of that um, has been that I may want to translate English into Spanish and it may have never seen anything that it understands in the context of what I've said between English and Spanish, but it might have seen it between English and German. And it can derive from the German translation what the Spanish translations could, should be based on learning how it is presented in other languages. I think language translation has really practical real-world application today. There are, in the marketplace, there are tools that you can buy where you put in headphones and you speak to somebody in their native, you speak in your native language and they in their native language. And in real time, it's translating what you're saying back and forth. It's not perfect technology. And I think a lot of critics quickly point out that, oh, it made a mistake. And yes, it made a mistake. But I'll tell you that if, if I'm traveling to France and I don't know any French except for a few words, and I meet somebody that knows no English, the way that we communicate, I would love a tool like this, even if it wasn't 100% perfect. And I actually started my career doing international human rights work, and I worked in Bosnia and Kosovo, where I didn't speak the language, and, and a lot of people I worked with didn't speak English. And a tool like that would be incredible. It gets a little bit trickier when we start getting into specific domains like law, because law has very specific words, and a lot of the tools are very general at this point, with more data and more time and more training uh, where a human is correcting the machine, I see these tools as getting much better. But I don't, you know, at the end of the day, for me, I don't think like this is not something that has to be perfect. We can think of it as a tool that any professional uses. An example would be before there were shovels, people used rocks and other objects to try to dig. And someone invented a shovel and it's much better. And then somebody invented a, a front loader and that 
made it even more efficient. And now we can automate it with, with autonomous vehicles that can dig and whatever. My point is, is that, that if we think of it just as a tool that a human uses, maybe it does a lot of the translation and then you correct it. And a job that maybe took eight hours now takes one hour. And that would be a huge advancement in, in how we see it being used. Now, there's a very strong cultural bias against using automated language translation. I remember a poster in the wall of a court interpreter's office that said, friends don't let friends use Google Translate. Ivy, can we reasonably expect society to accept automated language translation? Well, again, I think it's something that is going to evolve, and, and it depends how painful the pain points are. If if the thing that stands between somebody getting justice by being able to leverage the court is that you need an interpreter or a translator and that uh, resource is not available and therefore justice is delayed or maybe it never happens, I think that's a pretty painful result. So in, in that sense, I could see courts moving to this type of tool. But again, I, th I think it's not a black and white issue. It's not an either or. It's a tool that can be used by professionals to help. And if it can make them more efficient to where an interpreter or a translator could do twice the amount of work in a day, that's a huge benefit. And in that sense, I think we can expect courts to accept it. But a, an important piece to that is that a human is still involved. This isn't something where it's just taking at face value what the machine has translated. Now, we'll explore more opportunities that AI offers and more concerns right after this short break. Hi, I'm Vicki Carlson, Court Administrator in Scott County, Minnesota. I really enjoy the challenges of my work with the courts. To help me through the challenges, I rely on the education and member networking that I receive from the National Association for Court Management. This year's annual conference will be held at the fabulous Bellagio Resort in Las Vegas, Nevada. The theme is creating public trust. As always, I know the conference will be informative, educational, and entertaining. I urge you to come. You'll be glad you got involved. Ah, uh, we're back. Now, I've heard the greatest strength of AI is also its greatest weakness. AI must have data to work. It must have lots and lots of data. We also know the original maxim of computers. Garbage in, garbage out. Abhijit, how do we as court professionals ensure that AI is using good data? Yes, AI needs data, a lot of data. We need data to train the machine learning models. We need data to test them out. The learning in machine learning is a continuous process. So we need the feedback data to monitor how the whole AI system is performing. And, and so we can monitor it and improve as more data flows through an AI system. Now, data is a representation of our world. It is not perfect representation. So data has distortions or biases in it due to the way it was collected or measured or evaluated, stored, processed. So when we use data in building an AI system, we have to know exactly where it came from, 
how good it is, and if it is relevant to the machine learning task you're using it for. It, it is important to know what are the inherent biases or distortions in that data, and understanding those will help us build better AI systems. Besides language translation, I've also heard that voice-to-text is not too far off. Abhijit, could we soon be seeing audio recordings of court hearings directly converted to written transcripts? And if so, how soon do you think it'll occur? Well, we have had some form of voice-to-text for a while, and with AI, it is likely to get better. As Ivy mentioned earlier on, you know, we have systems that can translate on the fly. So voice-to-text is really within reach. Is The question really is, is it good enough for the task that we are trying to use it for? So every, every AI system will have an error rate, you know, the percentage of predictions that it makes that are incorrect or inaccurate. The question when we apply the current state of technology to a particular task is to know the error rate and identify whether that error rate is acceptable for the task that you're using it for. So, for example, if you are doing a you know, voice to text or voice translations, you can say that if it is a banter between two people, some inaccuracies are probably okay. But when we talk about court documents, say medical analysis, for example, then the bar is higher. We, the error rate can make a difference between life or death or can make a difference between an unjust decision. So it, it is a trade-off between what it can provide today and uh, whether that is acceptable for the task that you're using it for. One of the public's biggest concerns about AI is the loss of privacy. Ivy. How concerned should we be, and what are some of the ethical issues that we should be aware of in this area? I think to answer that, you have to just understand in the context of history how technology has changed, how we've worked, how we've lived, how we govern ourselves. So you might start with, well, what is a reasonable expectation of privacy? This expectation likely changes over time. For instance, if somebody attended college in the late 1980s, say, and there's a photograph of a person at a party, and maybe the person's holding an alcoholic beverage, maybe they're underage, um, maybe they're intoxicated, who knows, right? There are probably boxes full of pictures like that under, under people's beds or in storage units or whatever, and yet I would say most people aren't worried about anyone discovering those pictures, because in order to discover that, Somebody would have to find the box of pictures, have to sort through it, have to identify who was in the picture, and then if they wanted to do damage with it, would have to somehow broadcast that. So fast forward to today. Now, with things like facial recognition, things like enhanced searching or, uh, in video and understanding what's happening in the context of a picture or a video, and you take something like now somebody is just walking down the street, maybe they've been drinking or whatever, and somebody else takes a photograph, not of them, but they're in the background, and the AI tags that person as being drunk in public and puts it on the internet. And now if somebody searches for that person saying that picture shows up, and that is way more likely to happen today than it would have happened in the 1980s. So 
the challenge there is, is do you have a right privacy for being drunk walking down the street? And that's something we can debate as a society and we can add, add rules and laws around when you can use that. But that's a real effect of the technology just going forward. Children uh, of a son who's in high school, and I tell them that all the time, you know, be very careful about what you do and say and how often you take pictures because you should have the expectation that somebody is going to discover those pictures 20 years from now, maybe during a job interview or during, during whatever. Just know that the technology is getting to the place where it can start to recognize you. So, yes, I think there, there is a conversation that we as a society need to have around privacy and, and either the lack thereof or maybe an enhanced privacy. And it's stuff that likely the risks are not just stuff that we would expect. Like if I put my name into, uh, you know, into Netflix with some information, I expect to have them keep that private. And if they don't do that, then some type of breach of either contract or some type of breach of a law or something. And that's one thing. But I see the privacy issues really spilling out much broader than this, given that the technology can do so much more and know so much more about you. Another ethical issue I've heard about is the question of who is responsible for an algorithm once it is released. For example, an individual who is drunk climbs into a self-driving car. On the way home, the car hits and kills a pedestrian. Ivy, who's responsible? The drunk? The company that designed the algorithm that drove the car? Both? In many cases, we don't know yet. The law is trying to catch up with the state of technology. You know, this this example is an interesting example because it raises a lot of maybe ethical, legal, moral questions. You know, one of the things that if we just think about cars as an example, prior to inventing the automobile, you know, when we invented it, we invented the auto accident. We saw lots of deaths increase when people started driving cars. Uh, the The laws reacted to that and they, they made rules around driving like you can't drive while you're drunk. Like you have to wear a seatbelt, um, you have to drive a certain speed. So society responded to the inherent risk of having this thing called an automobile, which has a massive society benefit. So now we're talking about cars being able to be driven without humans, potentially someday, some type of autonomous car where it can drive. Now, the upside of this is it seems to be huge. The shift that will happen in society when humans no longer drive cars, but cars drive themselves by computer. Some people estimate that the million people that die per year in auto accidents might drop down to as low as 10,000. It's a huge safety increase, uh, you know, a huge benefit. Yet, if one person dies at the hands of a machine, that just naturally doesn't sit well with us. We, we really struggle with that concept. So my sense is what you're going to see is the law is going to try to figure out how to de-risk the situation or balance the risk in the situation. I think you're going to see insurance companies having to take different positions. Theoretically, if a human is no longer driving a car, the insurance company is going to have to, instead of insuring against the driver, it's going to have to insure against the car, which means that the risk no longer lies with the driver itself, but with the car. And, and then it's going to be who, maybe who designed the algorithm, who trains it, who maintains it who programmed the decisions that it makes uh, into it. Uh, maybe it's the auto manufacturer that leverages that technology. We'll see how it plays out. I don't think we can know that yet. Now, there is a debate raging over jobs that will be created with the advent of AI, 
and jobs that will be lost. Two new professions I've heard of are data scientists and teachers who will instruct new users in AI. Let me ask both of you, what types of jobs can we expect to be in demand and how do young professionals get trained in these areas? Abhijit? Uh, yes, uh, AI is expected to change the job landscape dramatically. The question is, what are the qualities that you would need to, to, to do a job in this new landscape? So some jobs that require mundane repetitive tasks will probably be automated, but jobs that require human judgment or empathy or ability to connect with other humans, those will be actually become more valuable and more in demand. So AI could be used to automate less interesting jobs and free up human resources to do other jobs that require that specific type of human judgment and human qualities. So, and we, we earlier talked about, uh, you know, Peter writing a joke or, or piece of music. And yes, an AI could do that. But as humans, we tend to react more with uh, art that's created by another human being or a joke that's told by another human being. So all those fields or that are of human creativity will probably gain more in value because those cannot be easily automated or may not have the same value when they're automated. And so, and the other side of it is really the whole field of AI itself. You know, it's uh, AI as an industry will require better mathematicians and scientists and understanding of science and other domains like law and medicine. And those will not go away. Those will still stay. But the actual job defini definitions are not, have not been, have not evolved yet. So that's something that we probably see new responsibilities and roles and professions emerge from this exciting new technology. Ivy? I think I would just build on what Abhijit said and mm -hmm. react by saying that I think one way to approach this is, is we're raising our children and what is it that we expect them to be doing? And I think you mentioned the year 2027. And it's very likely that some of the technology that's going to drive life in 2027 hasn't even been invented yet. So how do you train people for that? Or how do you tell them what skills to have? So really, instead of focusing on the what, I think maybe focus on the who. You know, we, we raise our kids to be creative and to uh, engage in, in play and cre creativity, um, to have empathy, to, you know, really enhance the things that make us human. And because I think those are the kind of qualities, whatever the job is, that are going to be really valuable in the, in the market 10 years from now as we, as, uh, as the technology continues to evolve and, and change. And I will, will just make one other observation. I think it is going to feel very bumpy as we go through this transition. We're starting to feel it now with jobs being lost to automation. Uh, and this is happening more and more. And I think uh, for the first time in history, those jobs are starting to affect white collar workers, not just blue collar workers. Uh, and you know, there are many eras in history where we've seen technology disrupt the workplace, always landed on our feet because new jobs have been created. Uh, we stopped doing the old jobs and started doing new jobs. I think that'll happen to an extent here. But if I had to give advice to a kid that's getting ready to start a career, I would say focus on the skills that make you a human. I think creativity is probably one of the biggest traits that I would look for, you know, in the future of jobs. 
It's been a pleasure talking with both of you today about this fascinating area and where courts will be involved. But let's go back to the question that we asked at the start of the podcast. What should we as court professionals be doing to prepare for AI? Abhijit? I think courts should be looking at the new evolving technologies and and looking at ways in which the current state of that technology can be applied uh, with uh, in a very cautious and and thoughtful way so that we we do not go ahead of what the technology can actually do today and then there are many areas in court processes in the way court staff do daily tasks that possibly could be assisted in not completely automated necessarily but providing assistance to humans in the court processes so that they can do their jobs better in the world of medicine for example there are ideas of using ai to provide information to doctors and medical staff that helps them provide better services to a patient and i think we can think of similar ways in which we can use this new technology to help court staff uh, serve the public that uh, that interacts with the justice system ivy you know, I, I think the way that I would answer this question actually is I would take a step back and I wouldn't necessarily say focus on this technology or that technology. I would take a step back and I would ask the question, you know, what is the purpose of the court? What is the value that the court provides in our society? And there are many values that you know, court professionals, I'm sure, know what they are. And to the extent that we are underperforming or that we're not uh, operating at 100% capacity of what we really need. In other words, the demand is greater than the supply. If you can think of kind of like a heat map of where your friction points are, like what are the things that we have to try to put humans place of to do jobs? Those places that light up on a heat map are opportunities for creating efficiency to automation, to doing things, to let machines do things that humans normally do. You mentioned, you know, we talked a little bit about language translation. We talked about transcription. Those are two areas that we might see a lot of improvement in. We can think of the job that a clerk does or somebody that answers a phone, answers simple questions like what, what are the hours that you're open or how do I get to court? Or people, if you think about it from a justice perspective, people coming to court for the first time feeling very nervous, not quite knowing what to do or where to go or what's going to happen. There are technology solutions for all of this, things with augmented reality and artificial intelligence and such, you know, technologies like blockchain. So there's a lot of technology out there. There's a lot of ways that we're going to help solve problems. But maybe the best way to think about how to do this is just to take a step back, ask the question, what is our value? Figure out where our friction points are. And then I think the technology will start to show up um, and solve those problems. I want to thank Abhijit and Ivy for offering their insights with us. We can already see where artificial intelligence is touching our lives. It will only become more pronounced in the years to come. Abhijit, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Ivy, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and ideas. Yeah, thank you very much. It was fun. If you're interested in learning more about artificial intelligence and how it will affect the courts, including a segment from the book Prediction Machines by A.J. Gargral, Joshua Gans, and Avi Goldfarb, I invite you to take a look at the show notes section for this podcast episode on our website. So until next month, I'm Pete Kiefer, and this has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.